Hello and welcome to the Science of Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Sir Jeff Mulgan. He is Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy and Social Innovation at University College London. He has, frankly, a terrifyingly diverse background which spans public policy, technology, academia and journalism to name just a few. He's been the Head of Policy in the UK Prime Minister's Office, the Director of the British Government's Strategy Unit, the Chief Executive of the Innovation Foundation Nesta, the Head of the Think Tank Demos, a visiting lecturer all around the world. The list goes on. But the thread that connects these many assorted experiences is a focus on generating and incubating, his word, not mine, innovative ideas and institutions that improve society. So, hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Good to be with you. Frankly, I think there are about 10 episodes waiting to be recorded based just on the small selection of your background that I just summarised. But we have agreed to zoom in on one specific question, which is about how governments absorb and use the knowledge that they have received. I I would guess that by knowledge, we mostly mean scientific evidence, evidence and research. Uh, But perhaps you want to offer a different definition. Um, I've got a broader definition. And in a way, what's been interesting me, partly through the pandemic and seeing the relationship between science and decision making in COVID, but also because I've been writing a book about science and politics. For me, the question is partly how does scientific knowledge of all kinds get into governments at every level, but also looking for the other end of the telescope. If you're a minister needing to make a decision about something like lockdowns or mandatory masks or vaccination, the kinds of knowledge which may be useful to you in making that decision will be very varied. They will include lots of scientific knowledge, but also knowledge of economics or public opinion or behavior or psychology. And what I've been trying to sort of get a sense of is what's a more coherent approach to handling the plurality of knowledges which a modern government needs to be on top of. All right. So do you think governments ever have anything like a coherent approach to that? I mean, my sense is, I guess, partly because of the complexity you just described. Um, This is often more a case of responding to needs that pop up that are more or less urgent based on whatever information is to hand. I presume your argument is that we can do better than just kind of doing it by feel. Well, I think in reality, they mainly do do it by by feel, by hunch, by by intuition, by what, what they think they can get away with. And some of the time that's okay. But perhaps because I do have a rather scientific background, I wonder if we can do better than that. And I think it was very striking through the pandemic when governments were having to make really very difficult judgments about trade-offs between uh, physical health and infections on the one hand and effects of mental health of, of lockdowns or effects on kids of having their schools locked down for long periods of time. They did actually need some methods for weighing up these often very conflicting messages and they didn't have methods and they weren't being given good methods by the scientific community. They often didn't have them from their own sort of policy makers. And so they did rely on on sort of hunch. And sometimes the hunches worked well and other times they didn't work well at all. And we, we've seen this year, this in you know, in China in an extraordinary degree, this you know, whole system struggling with weighing up and synthesizing the very contradictory messages from their in their case, it's from the zero COVID policy, which 
has required really freezing the economy almost to a halt and having an enormous impact probably on hundreds of millions of children's opportunities. So one of the things I'm hoping to do with with some other governments is, is to see, could we do a little bit better than just turning extraordinarily sophisticated science advice which goes into government uh, and then just expecting a bit of hunch, a bit of gut intuition to make sense of it in order to feed through into decisions. I, I think we could do better than that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting project, certainly for me, because what we mostly talk about, what scientists mostly talk about when they talk about the science policy interface is the interface and how it should be designed. And if we do kind of venture beyond that in one direction or the other, it's usually into the scientist's side. And when it comes to the question of what policymakers do with that evidence, I mean, not only do we tend to hand wave it away by saying it's up to them to figure that out or, you know, they use their judgment or they have political priorities they have to reconcile or whatever. We also kind of make a virtue out of hand waving it away by saying, well, it's not for us to say. Like we're interested in how to get the policymakers the best science in the most useful package that we can, but then how they use it, how they integrate that into their role, that's then the political process. It's not our business. And I think you are kind of working out towards the middle from the other side, I think. Well, it's it's also, I think that model of science advice did make sense probably in the last century, where you had advisors outside feeding stuff in, not trying to go too far, retaining their sort of independence, their neutrality. And it was someone else's job to make sense of it and turn it into laws or regulations. I think that's increasingly unsustainable, that view of the sort of scientists outside the system. And we saw again and again through the pandemic, scientists de facto making really important decisions, almost executive decisions, affecting hundreds of millions of people's lives with enormous costs. And my hunch is we're going to move towards new arrangements, which are much more hybrid, much more synthetic, and bring together the scientists and and the politicians, um, making integrative decisions. We'll need that on future pandemics. And the scientists will have to be held to account when they get things wrong. And there were a lot of mistakes were made uh, over the last two and a half years. Um, we'll need it around climate change, which is very, very similar in structure, even though it's a slow crisis, not a fast crisis, in that you're having to weigh up an extraordinary body of knowledge coming from, from the science, from the modeling, from the IPCC and so on, but having to weigh that that up against what does it mean for jobs and the economy or people's well-being, etc. And I don't think scientists can just sort of pretend they're outside that decision-making process, just feeding in, in advice. In part because if you do work in governments, it becomes fair. You see fairly quickly that the people, the other side of that barrier, as it were, you know, the ministers, prime ministers, presidents, mayors, and so on, they just don't have the means to cope with this degree of complexity. Uh, and they need help. So they need to become in some ways more scientific and much better prepared to deal with complex patterns and data and systems. But equally, the scientists, I think, have to become much more streetwise about the realities of politics and how government works. And they can't hide behind this detached advisory role for much longer. Okay, well, this sounds like a big and intimidating task. I mean, as you said, governments have a lot of sources of information. So Is there such a thing as a general approach, some general processes for doing this? Or is it essentially all done case by case? 
I think there are some general methods you can use for synthesis, and I, I've sort of tried setting them out. And um, and at different times, I, I've helped work with or run strategy teams in the middle of governments, which are meant to, in a sense, do this job on anything from yeah, energy policy to drugs to education. And crudely speaking, you know, you go through some stages and you can do it in a fairly structured way of trying to map what do you know? Uh, what are the causal relationships between things? What are the gaps where you don't actually know very much? But you, you initially try and get a, essentially a, a picture of the system and its, its dynamics uh, and its logics. And for most, for many things, there'll be different sciences which contribute to that. Maybe just take something like face masks. You know, there, there's there's a sort of physics of face masks, and uh, you know how fluids of different sizes get through different holes. But there's a the different was engineering science of what happens in buildings. There's a behavioural science of what people will be willing to do and whether they'll actually keep the mask on their face. There's a sort of you know psychological science of how social norms play out, and so on and so forth. And the job of anyone trying to make sense of an issue like that is, first of all, you p try and piece these things together into a coherent uh, uh, picture. And um, and that's quite a difficult task to do. And, 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 and how, how do you do it? I mean, do you just get them all around the table and say, come on, you're not leaving this room until you've sorted this out? Well, in the past, I've quite liked um, doing visualizations of this. Um, if, if you really try and map a system and all the causal interconnections, you can literally do it on enormous walls. And then for each link, you try and say, what do we know? How well do we know what we know? And where are the gaps? And over time, people coming from very different disciplinary backgrounds can converge towards a more, you know, a, 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 a synthetic view of how the thing works it's a little bit like the you know the indian parable of the elephant you know the the, the blind men and the elephant each where some you know see the legs and think it's a tree trunk one sees the trunk and thinks it's a snake and so forth and it takes a bit of time for people to realize this thing they might have researched all their life actually looks rather different seen through the lens of another discipline and then in a second stage you move into options for for action uh, or you may try and leap beyond so were the constraints of current practices to to, to new ideas, to possibilities, to ways of transcending the problems. And then you have a series of sort of looped processes where you interrogate those. So it, it's nearly always two stages. There's synthesis for understanding. How do you really understand how a system works? And then synthesis for action is often somewhat different from that because if you're acting on something like you know, carbon emissions in a city, your tools for action will be be relatively limited. You know, you may have some taxes and some regulations and some ways of organizing transport systems, but they will be often distinct from the tools you have for understanding the phenomena. So I think it is worth actually putting a bit of effort into these methods um, for seeing things in the round and for embedding skills and habits of doing that well in the heart of, of a government, because so many of their tasks in the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to be synthetic tasks. So it's not just pandemics and climate change, but also something like artificial intelligence, which the whole of you know Europe is grappling with. How do you regulate AI, let alone perhaps quantum, as quantum computing may undermine all of our current cryptography? Again, these are multidimensional complex issues, which no single discipline can help you get to the right answers. So I think we need to really ratchet up our capabilities 
to do this kind of synthetic, much more systemic thought and action. Right. And you put that task on the government, on the policymaking side. I mean, I'm asking because I, I've also heard the case being made that this kind of synthesis of different scientific perspectives, or even to reconcile scientific evidence with other kinds of evidence, other sources of knowledge, is the job of the scientist or the science advisor or the science advisory committee. Well, in an ideal world, perhaps the scientists would be able to do that job of synthesis. But I, I talk to lots of scientists who've been involved in, in research and advice, and I've yet to find one who can give an account of how they do that job of synthesis themselves. They don't have the methods. And I think it's, it's almost unrealistic to expect scientists to do that. This is by its nature a more political task because it involves making sense of the scientific knowledge, but integrating with knowledge of yeah, political circumstances, public opinion, all these other things, which in fact weigh in. Just as in our own lives, very few of us make our daily decisions solely based on the science of fitness or diet, or we'd be rather unusual people. If we did, we weigh them up against convenience and relationships and all sorts of other things. And it's not surprising the same is true of whole societies and of governments too. Yeah, very good. Um, I don't know if you have uh, like a particular case to do an example, either one that you've worked on or a kind of hypothetical one. If not, then fine, we won't ask this question. But if you do have one in mind that you want to talk us through, it might be helpful. Well, maybe I might mention one which uh, I've been working on the last few months. Um, as part of the uh, International Public Policy Observatory, which I helped run, which looks at sort of global evidence around uh, COVID-19. And one of the topics we've been looking at is population mental health. So what happens if you're, um, as a country, as a government, concerned not just about the most acute mental health needs of you know, one or two percent of the population with really severe depression, psychosis, schizophrenia, and so on. But you're trying to influence what could be 20 or 30 percent of your population struggling with anxiety, with depression, and so on. This became, in some ways, a, a bigger, more visible issue during the pandemic, because in some countries, there were signs of, you know, significant worsening of anxiety levels, particularly amongst um, amongst young people. So this raises the question, what do you do? Uh, and this, again, is a classic topic where there is a, a task of synthesis for understanding. So how do we make sense of what makes people unhappy, uh, miserable? Uh, and it's quite a complicated story about, you know, about family, about prospects, about social interaction, about physical spaces, about social media, and so on. And then what do you do to influence it? And because this is a relatively new topic without much evidence or history, no, no governments have ever had really a strategy for population level mental health in the past. You have to be a bit creative. And there are, you know, there are things you can do to train up cadres of, of therapists. There are things you can do to use online tools for self-assessment or sort of self-management. There are things you can do to build up peer uh, support. And you can also do very different things, so like in care homes. You know, we, we have a lot of evidence now on what influences old people's um, mental well-being. And not interacting socially with others is really bad for you. <laughs> so the fact that you know millions of people were essentially locked up in their rooms in care homes through the pandemic was pretty disastrous from a mental health point of view. But again, you can only address this issue in this fairly sort of broad sort of systemic way. You can't think of it just in terms of individual therapies provided by, you know, a, a, a doctor. Um, you have to look at 
really the influence of so many different things from the way schools are run to the way cities are designed if you really want to get a grip of this this set of issues which are more and more important i think across the world in fact uh, a few weeks ago i did an event with a group of members of parliament from right across europe from ukraine to portugal and we offered them various topics at a breakout session to talk about and population mental health was the most popular topic it turned out they really wanted to understand what they could do as politicians to have an impact on, on this question hmm yeah i think i think that's a good example because well we can always talk about covid can't we about fast moving emergency crises i think in those kind of situations it's very clear that the model you're describing is a urgently needed and b you can imagine how it fits into the process of making decisions because you have that clearly defined point where the politician says okay i know nothing or next to nothing please help me understand but it strikes me that for a lot of the bigger more complex more long-term systemic issues or indeed the issues that aren't so clearly dependent on just scientific evidence in the way that disease management is, for instance. Politicians often come to the table with either tight political constraints on them or kind of answers in mind already. So, and this isn't a problem just for your approach, it's also a problem for classical science advice, of course. But then the classical model, we kind of accept that the science gets input into the process as best we can, but then the policymaker takes it and runs with it and they'll make it fit with their pre-existing priorities or beliefs or whatever um, or not. But then your model involves sitting down around the table with everyone right at the start and saying, okay, what do we know about the facts and the problems and their connections and the causes and effects and so on? And what do we not know? And then what are the solutions or what are the ways around the usual solutions that haven't worked? And that depends really heavily on open-mindedness. So it seems to me you're going to face immediately this issue that governments either have a political agenda which defines the solution space they're interested in, or or you have civil servants or agencies that are beholden to an agenda like that. So I wonder how well this gets off the ground in practice. Well, I mean, all of this is quite difficult in practice, but it's also unavoidable. I mean, take the example of artificial intelligence, which the you know, European Union is legislating on. There's been intensive work in the last year or two to make sense of what should we do. The politicians know that they can't do nothing in the face of very powerful facial recognition technologies or very powerful platforms like TikTok and Facebook, you know, or decisions on people's mortgages or their job prospects. So inaction is not an option. But there isn't much you know, scientific evidence or knowledge on what you should do. There are fantastic scientists you know, creating AI algorithms, but that doesn't really tell you what you should do in terms of policy. So to my mind, this is an, an example, perhaps rather different from pandemics and, and climate change, where it has to be a bit conversational. It's not as if the politicians come with a political agenda. They will come with some hunches about what might need to be done, but they're not very crystallized. And the scientists don't really have much of a clue on it either, nor do the ethicists. There's a, there's a lot of AI ethicists out there. So it's only through iteration and conversation and then putting in place, I suspect, more and more quite time-limited regulations where you try something out and see how it goes. I mean, for example, for several years, Europe has been talking about requiring transparency and explainability 
for important AI algorithms, which is fine in principle, but it pretty quickly becomes clear that very few people understand many algorithms and ones we use every day like Google Search. Nobody understands. The people working on them long ago ceased understanding how they work or could explain that to a member of the public. So we need a, a sort of way of adjusting in response to experience, for particularly around these very fast-changing technologies, which again isn't like the old model of science advice, where the scientists, you know, work put together a good report, it's sent into the parliament, and then a year or two later, some legislation happens, and you know, no one returns the issue for ten years. This has to be much more real time, much more iterative. And it requires relationships of trust, I think, between the scientists and the decision makers. So when something suddenly flares up, you know, two years ago, we had in the UK, this issue of algorithms being used in the education department for exam results for children, which led to marches in the streets of London uh, against the algorithm. The Netherlands has something very similar on the welfare uh, misuse of algorithms, which actually led the government to resign for a time. So these issues are becoming sort of high politics, but there aren't easy solutions. So it's only through creating new mechanisms of dialogue and exploration that we'll get to workable answers. And the scientists have to become part of that process. They can't, again, just be sitting outside thinking of themselves just as advisors. All right, good. Well, I mean, that's persuasive. I do want to ask you about another potential hurdle, though. It's not just that scientists don't want to be involved. They want to stand apart for their own reasons. I mean, it's rarely that in my experience. I think it's often more that scientists see a value in separating themselves, so separating the knowledge-generating, advice-giving side from the processing of the, of the advice, from the way it's put into practice. I mean, it's the old-fashioned way, for sure, but it also implies some values which we might be reluctant to leave behind. For instance, the idea of not getting too cozy with policymakers so you can retain a degree of objectivity. The scientist can say, I'm happy to answer your questions and I'm happy to understand your needs, but don't ask me to get involved in the day-to-day work of delivering it. Don't make me get my hands dirty. And of course, that's not only about maintaining objectivity, but also about being able to demonstrate the objectivity so the government can point and say here's the evidence we used and here is what we made of it and they're different things yeah and i think that, i think that's right i think most scientists most of the time should stay fairly detached from you know making laws and things like that they are different roles being a scientist and being uh, and being a politician we want lots of scientists to be able to do very speculative you know, profound research exploring fields without too much uh, a fear of, of being held to account for the consequences. I hold to a rather old fashioned view that there is a sort of a truth or at least a, we should be aspiring to, you know, to, to achieve truths. Uh, and that's a, that's a very sort of science world way of thinking about it. And in politics, there's a different way of thinking about things. Truths are usually much more, um, much more contingent and much more uh, contextual. Um, so there's no doubt there there are differences and there should be. But I think we'll see more and more people having to become, as it were, hybrid people, having to be bilingual in the language and the ethos and the values of science, which it's extreme, though it's not that extreme. It's the idea of science is completely detached from human interests or human values. 
or human lives. It can, you know, take the the, the vantage point of the universe. Um, and you know, that's an extraordinarily exciting thing which science can do. But it's completely different from the world of politics, which is about us here and now, what we care about, what we feel about our identities uh, and belongings. And this is where I think it's important that there's a mutual recognition of the different cultures and really worldviews of politics and science. This is what I'm writing a book on at the moment, is just how different they are and how necessarily uh, different they are. But precisely because they are so different, at a time when an increasing proportion of the decisions governments are making have a large science element in them, we need people, processes, institutions, which can be hybrids between these very divergent views, who can think simultaneously in terms of what do we really know, what's, what are the facts, but also the language of politics, which is more what matters, what really counts for us now or for our electors, our public, who probably don't care that much about 300 years' time or the um, you know, uh, findings of deep space astronomy, uh, something like that. <laughs> okay, so how do we get from where we are now to where we need to be? I think there is an education task. It's very strange to me that politicians are about the only important group in our society who don't basically get any training. Uh, at least they don't in Europe. In other parts of the world, they do. Australia, for example, now has an academy of politicians. In China, uh, where I teach quite a bit, you know, there are classes for mayors and governors and ministers. They have to do really serious uh, uh, learning work. What do they study? I'm, I'm interested. Uh, the China Executive Leadership Academy, the party schools teach them uh, everything from international law to technology and science and um, emerging fields. So 10, 15 years ago, I used to teach the green economy, the circular economy uh, in, in China to these people. More recently, they've been much more focused on AI and uh, advanced tech. But it's just assumed if you're going to be a major decision maker, you have to be on top of a whole set of bodies of knowledge you won't have learned as an undergraduate. In Europe, we still have politicians mainly grounded in law, economics, and journalism, and still not that many with a, a science grounding. So if nothing else, I think we need academies for politicians. Long before that, I think in universities, we need more courses. Uh, and I'm part of a, uh, one we're creating at UCL, which starts next year, which is science, technology, engineering, and public policy integrated together in an undergraduate degree. So you have, you produce people able to think about you know, fundamental transitions in energy systems or uh, the cutting edge of uh, a digital technology or where we go next for, for, for buildings. And in between that, there's a whole range of other kinds of of education needed to prepare the sort of people we need for making decisions now. But there's then also, I think, a task within governments of organizing intelligence in a more integrated way. And perhaps I might just spend one, one minute on this. It may be, um, and this may be, may be obvious to some, but it may not be. Uh, I've been part of a project in the last few months looking globally at how governments organize intelligence for the pandemic. And by intelligence, we mean everything from data to evidence to tacit knowledge to foresight, all the things that could help them uh, make decisions. And we've been looking at Taiwan and Singapore and Estonia and Finland and Canada and so on. And what's striking in most countries 
is this task of intelligence is very divided up. So there are different groups do the statistics, the data, the science advice, the social policy stuff. And they're also then divided up by really 19th century departments, a health department, an education department, uh, and so on. And usually their capacity at the middle to think in a coherent, synthetic, holistic way is very, very uh, limited. There are partial exceptions like Singapore. Whereas when it comes to money, most modern governments do actually have a ministry of finance, a finance function dotted around every other ministry, every municipality, which kind of creates a common way of thinking about money, uh, which is fairly you know, well-organized. And my gut is that in 10, 20 years' time, intelligence will be organized much more like we organize money. It will be seen as probably the most important input, as it were, to the work of, of a government. Um, but it has to be organized through, again, synthetic capabilities and professions who can link together data, evidence, science, all the different kinds of knowledge you need to make a decision in a coherent way, rather than these really very anachronistic divisions, which um, we still treat as normal. So we end up somewhat formalizing then this process of moving from evidence to synthesis to, to a coherent intelligence picture, and then to policymaking. It sounds like some of what you're describing is bringing into that somewhat formalized picture sources of knowledge that currently have an informal impact or, or maybe missed out completely. You mentioned stuff like tacit knowledge, community perspectives, and so on. Well, I think you should always work backwards from the decision you're trying to make, and that may determine which knowledge is relevant. So for some things, people's lived experience may be really, really important. You know, what matters to them, to the public, even if it's not formalized anywhere by any particular discipline. One of the things which has come out really strongly from this research we're doing on intelligence and the pandemic is the importance of relationships, informal relationships. That's true at the global level with the WHO and the global networks of pandemic preparedness, where everyone has said to us, actually, it's the personal links between people who trusted each other were as important as any formal structures for, for sharing of, of knowledge and data in real time. And within countries, the relationships between different tiers matters greatly. Again, if you're in a crisis, do you know the person working in the city, the region, the municipality? Can, can they call you and have an informal chat about this hugely pressing problem you've got to deal with by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? And in some countries like the UK, where I am, these relationships have got much weaker in recent years. There's much less capacity for that kind of informal coordination. Why is that? Which you see... Uh, well, there's a whole lot of reasons over centralization in London, but also actually the deliberate disappearance of government used to have regional offices, which acted as intermediaries. It used to have many programs where there'd be joint training for local and national government, partly so they'd get to know each other. Whereas other countries like Finland, you know, does regular exercises with the different tiers of government, but also with business to prepare for invasions by Russia and things like that. And so that, that builds the really the social capital, the informal relationships, which are become really important if you're hit by something like a pandemic. So we need, we need to look at the so we're invisible links as well as the sort of formal organograms in terms of how you make a society or a government a bit more like a yeah, functioning brain, a coherent intelligence rather than one that's very divided up. Mm -hmm. It's a nice image. 
I would like to throw one more ball for you to take a swing at, which is maybe one step further away from the specifics of what we've been talking about. But I think you might still have an interesting perspective on it. So during and after COVID, of course, there's been a lot of questions asked about the role of science in society in general and the degree of trust and confidence that people have in science. And I think the approach you're describing relies very heavily on confidence, even more heavily on the confidence of policymakers to kind of allow science advice into the heart of what they do rather than just treating it as an external input. Do you think science scientists in general have the position in society that they need to be able to play that role? Uh, We're in a very odd position in relation to the position of science. On the one hand, science is visibly so much more important to so much more of our daily lives and politics. And we saw this through the pandemic. We see it in, you know, the COP meetings and so on. And yet science is also embattled with uh, anti-science sentiment, if anything, becoming stronger. And probably as people feel become more fearful, as perhaps our economies go into slowdown in 2023, there'll be even more of the sort of reactionary move uh, against science. And my hunch is that some of the inquiries into COVID will be quite critical of the scientists. In a way, they they benefited from a lot of trust and confidence. But on some issues, they probably made wrong decisions. They nearly always tended to want to prolong lockdowns and constraints. Uh, and some people, I suspect, will increasingly say that privileged perhaps the, the elderly who were most vulnerable at the cost of a young generation who paid a huge price in terms of lost opportunities, lost socialization, lost education. So I think it's really important that the world of science prepares itself for, in some ways, a much more difficult decade or two ahead, where it will have to articulate in different ways what its role is, how it will be held to account if it gets things wrong, and how it will not sort of stand on the sidelines believing it has a sort of unique uh, authority, but will be willing to, to play its part in solving the hugely complex things we have, to, we have to fix in the next few decades, transitions to a, a net zero economy, coping with aging, coping with ubiquitous technologies. And I think sometimes the tone of science is, is too much still where it was in the late 20th century, which made sense for that era, but doesn't really make sense for the times we're in now. Yeah, people do talk about the, the golden age of scientific advice, or the second golden age, right? The first being the Manhattan Project in that kind of era, and the second being the late 20th century. Yeah, but so it's interesting you make that point. I think people also sometimes make the opposite claim. They say that if you look at the survey evidence, you can see that despite the increased volume of anti-science arguments and the increased noise around it, um, science actually has as high a level of trust now as it ever had. And in many cases, actually, it's more well regarded by the public than it was before COVID. So what's really striking, if you look at the survey evidence... Overall, globally, trust in science is high and probably higher than it was before uh, that pandemic. But I think it's important to look one layer behind those aggregate statistics uh, and see what's happening, particularly in perhaps elite decision-making circles, which are on the one hand becoming more aware of their dependence on science, but also rather more critical of the scientist's role in decision-making. 
So it's it's rather different from sort of the public dynamics of anti-vaxxers and so on, uh, all of whom said in mid-October that you know the, the the 5G implants would come alive and these sort of crazy ideas. But I think there's a more more sophisticated critical position taking shape, which the scientists need to be attuned to and ready for engaging with, which is very very different from perhaps the sort of Donald Trump Bolsonaro position. Okay, interesting. And so that is then a threat, or at least a practical hurdle to the agenda you've been describing. Yeah, and a good example of this is is the, the recently arrived Prime Minister in Britain, Rishi Sunak, who over the summer said quite critical things about scientists. Um, basically, he thought they'd got quite a few things wrong during the pandemic. They were too powerful in their influence. There weren't enough countervailing forces. There wasn't enough sort of um, uh, to and fro to, to interrogate their their claims. Now, you may agree with him, you may not agree with him, but that's someone like that who's a pretty rational, sort of um, uh, thoughtful uh, centre-right politician should A, think that, and B, think it was in his interest to say that, is telling of a, of a slight sort of shift in the, the tone of debate. And none of this is, and he would never say, let's have less science in government, is more, how do we improve the ways in which scientific analysis, expertise feeds into decision making so it can better be integrated with, in some ways, the other sciences, social sciences, economics, and so on. And then with the politicians part of the discussion, so as to get to, to, to viable policies, which which you know will work in practice. I think that's what he's aiming towards, and what the next generation of politicians, or many of them, will want is a much more, much more of a fusion, in a sense, of science and politics, rather than the scientists standing outside politics and just feeding in advice every now and again from a lofty pedestal. Yeah. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, but it does seem to me sometimes that there's a kind of unavoidable tension between the influence of science on a particular question and the influence of democracy, democratic decision-making. In the sense that if you're more guided by expert input, then you're less guided by popular sentiment, basically, to put it in the crudest way. And I mean, there's always a temptation for a politician who's seeking votes from whatever part of the population to say, you know, until now, people other than us have had too much influence. And what I will do if you vote for me is to take the influence away from them and bring it back to us. And science expertise in general might be just a victim of that. I think in the short run, there are often incentives for politicians just to knock scientists and to um, be sceptical of them and to in a sense, build themselves up as the, the true voice of the people, the true voice of good judgment. My hunch is that in the long run, any polity which disregards science will pay a price, will pay a price in terms of low economic growth, worse handling of crises, ecological disaster, <laughs> uh, because in some ways you can't long run back the science. The science uh, is, is the world of facts and the facts bite you. Reality kicks back at some points. Um, as both Trump and Bolsonaro experienced through the pandemic with the, the death rates and now the extraordinary figures from the US on uh, higher death rates in Trump voting states and districts is just one example of that. But I don't think it follows from that, therefore, that the scientists can carry on as they did in the last 20 or 30 years in terms of their relationship to politics. They have to re 
redefine that, renegotiate that. And they also have to learn better ways of communicating to the public, both about what they know and also about the limits of their knowledge and to communicate with a humility about when they are uncertain. Because I think that's the other thing which perhaps in the past scientists feared if they gave too much space to uncertainty, that would undermine their authority and no one would listen to them at all. I think we're probably now in an era where they need to be more honest about the limits of their knowledge in order to retain legitimacy. Well, thank you. This has been an extremely interesting conversation. So many thanks for that. Um, It's great to benefit not only from your vast and varied experience, but also, if I may say, uh, to enjoy your refreshing optimism, which is always nice to hear, but I guess especially nice when it comes hand in hand with experience. So, uh, Professor Sir Jeff Morgan, thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good.